This is the story of Henry Sutton, Australia's greatest inventor. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Henry Sutton story. Australia's greatest inventor, whose ideas changed the world, yet whose name has been somewhat forgotten and left off the pages of history. Just by downloading this podcast, you're helping to rectify that particular situation, so thank you. We left Henry in our last episode as he was enrolling in the School of Mines in Ballarat in the year 1872. Let's pick up the story a couple of years later in the year 1876, all the way across the other side of the world in the city of Philadelphia. To be precise, it's the 25th of June, 1876, and we are at the World's Fair. It was the first World's Fair to be held in the United States of America, and it was a part of celebrating 100 years since the Declaration of Independence. Officially, it was called the 1876 International Exhibition of Arts, Manufacturers and Products of Soil and Mine. In 17 years' time, Nikola Tesla will demonstrate alternating current electricity at the World's Fair in Chicago, but here, in Philadelphia, hundreds of thousands of visitors have been passing through an estimated 30,000 separate exhibitions, witnessing amazing revelations and developments. They've been introduced to a new fruit called a banana, imported from Malaysia. The new Remington typographic machine introduces something called the QWERTY keyboard, revolutionising the typewriter. General Leroy Stone unveils his new double-decker monorail, which carries people from the horticultural hall to the agricultural hall. There's a giant hand holding a burning torch made of iron and copper on display, raising interest in a work that Frederick Bertholdi and Gustave Eiffel are hard at work completing in Paris. When it's finished, it will be called the Statue of Liberty. And at one exhibition, the Emperor of Brazil holds a receiver to his ear, while 20 feet away, Alexander Graham Bell speaks into a mouthpiece. My God, it talks, is his quoted response. And the invention of the telephone makes its public debut, and the news spreads around the world, all the way to Ballarat, where a 21-year-old Henry Sutton has been having a tough time of things. His beloved father, Richard Sutton, has died after a year-long illness, leaving Henry, his mother Mary, and his brothers and sisters to continue with a flourishing family business, selling musical instruments and sheet music. His mother, with a keen eye for both business and real estate, has decided to open Australia's first music emporium in the very heart of the Ballarat CBD on Sturt Street to be known as Sutton's House of Music. It's the same building that a highly caffeinated journalist and a historian would barge into in search of evidence of the world's first telephone network roughly 130 years later. But back to Henry Sutton. He no doubt reads the news from Philadelphia about Bell's new invention and sets to work. Here's his great-granddaughter and biographer, Lorraine Branch, to tell you what happens next. Well, it didn't take long for the newspapers to report um, about Bell's telephone. It was only a matter of a few weeks. The, the, there was telegraph, so the news got here quite quickly. You didn't have to wait for a ship to bring a newspaper. And so Henry only had to hear about an invention, and it, it, it was enough. And it was like a, an awakening. And so it was not long after hearing about Bell's invention and he began working on the telephone here in Australia, being the first person in the world 
in Australia and in the Southern Hemisphere to actually work on telephones. And so even it came with a double compound telephone, but in, in the process, he thought it much more practical to actually have a telephone handset, one for the ear and the mouth, which went on a stand. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> because uh, uh, that just made sense to Henry. So he eventually came up with that. And then d in tracing that back, it predates anyone previously uh, who came up with the idea in principle. But um, Bell telephones used the candlestick for a very long time after that. Well, that's what we associate with the old movies and the old cartoons. You hold the earpiece to your ear and then you move up to this candlestick-type device and you speak into yeah. it. Now, that was Bell's design. So it's Henry Sutton that invents the handset. Yes, and then other people followed, but nobody paid attention to Henry once again here. Within six months of Bell's demonstration, Henry Sutton had designed and built more than 20 different kinds of telephones, based on the news reports he had read of how the telephone worked. Now, it's important to remember that Henry had grown up surrounded by musical instruments and understanding their construction, as well as being a talented musician himself, playing both the piano and violin. Because in his notes that Lorraine has uncovered, you can follow his genius. This is from a letter he published in the English Mechanic a World of Science about 18 months later in 1878. In it, he writes... I have no doubt it will interest a number of your readers to hear of a little fact I discovered during some telephonic experiments. I was endeavouring to improve the acoustic properties of the telephone by the adaptation of a soundboard, as in musical instrument construction, and was testing various boards with the object of choosing the most suitable in this manner shown in section. And there's an illustration to follow. And then he continues. Now it occurred to me during those experiments that the old Cremona violin makers utilised some such principle, i.e. testing for resonance, in the selection of the wood for their incomparable instruments, and not by any peculiar method of matching grains, for, etc., nor by using the most seasoned woods. Acting on this clue, I selected out of a number of pieces of wood in the manner explained those having the best resonating power. From these I constructed a sound box, and certainly I was not prepared for the result. This box, although roughly constructed out of common pieces of wood lying about, is as a resonator far superior to any of the many violins I have at my command, some 30. When a vibrating fork is placed on it, the volume is extraordinary. Not only this, but it has a delightfully pure tone and is exceedingly rich in the more valuable harmonics. Now this is an important fact, because what's sometimes missed in the glory bestowed upon Alexander Graham Bell apart from the controversy over a very similar patent filed the same day back in 1876 by Elisha Gray, is that the sound of Bell's invention was pretty dodgy. Sure, the Emperor of Brazil said, it talks, but he could only sort of make out some of the words. Henry's intensive experimentation with different types of materials and different types of magnets was the crucial innovation that created the modern telephone handset. In January 1878, Alexander Graham Bell demonstrates his telephone to Queen Victoria. This is a report that was published in the Argus newspaper out of Melbourne one month later, on February 15, 1878. Some interesting developments in telephony were made a few evenings ago at Mr H. Sutton's music warehouse in Sturt Street, in the presence of Mr Oddie, Mr Bechevet's the postmaster, Mr Blandford of the telegraph office, and several other gentlemen. 
The instruments experimented with were two of Professor Bell's portable telephones made by Mr Sutton, from which splendid results were obtained, and a new form of telephone described by its inventor, Mr H. Sutton, as a compound telephone. And the general opinion of those who witnessed those experiments is that this telephone is a great improvement on Professor Bell's. This instrument is different from Professor Bell's portable telephone in that it consists of a curved magnet surrounded by coils of wire at both ends. Each coil has a separate diaphragm, the curve of the magnet being so arranged that one diaphragm comes opposite the mouth of the operator, whilst the other diaphragm reaches the ear. The following good results are obtainable from this arrangement. First, that he can both speak and listen at the same moment. Second, that it involves mere intensity of sound. Third, the timbre of sounds transmitted is reproduced more perfectly. Fourth, when used as a transmitting instrument, the results obtained from all other telephones of the ordinary form in the same circuit are considerably improved. The instrument is mounted on an adjustable stand, which leaves both hands of the operator free. In Professor Bell's arrangement, two telephones are necessary, one held to the ear, one held to the mouth, both hands being thus engaged. Mr Sutton's telephone being compound opens up a new field for experimental research, and we understand he is still engaged in experiments which may still further improve the application of telephone science. The historical account you've published of Henry Sutton demonstrating the double compound telephone receiver to Mr Oddie and the, you know, the town leaders of Ballarat in a household. It's a fascinating account because it differs from that, that famous account of Alexander Bell, Mr. Watson, coming here to the room, I can hear you. In, in Sutton's world, it's all about music. Yeah. They, they demonstrate by singing songs. Yes, uh, yes, they were singing songs and Henry was playing a waltz he'd composed and they're all going, yes, that's the Sutton waltz and they're playing all these lovely musical songs and and making sounds and playing the violin. He tested the resonance by the violin, which was interesting. He used because he could play the violin and that's how he tested the resonance of the telephone. Which is just a fascinating concept. that they, They're inside a household. Tell us about this, this demonstration that he puts on. Yes, he's in one building in Ballarat, which was the music store, and they'd opened another one in the main street. And so the, he... He connected up with the telegraph line and ran it into the Sutton building and there they they talked to each other. But it's not just the construction of the telephone and the quality of sound where Henry is making giant steps. Always looking for the practical application of technology, the next thing he does is create the world's first telephone network. Um, He put the first telephone system in in the fire stations here in the School of Mines and he he installed the first telephone system in the music store between the two music stores in Ballarat. And so that was actually a first telephone line in Australia. <laughs> and that was some years before the first telephone exchange is built in, in Melbourne and he's built a, his own phone network here in Ballarat. Yes, and they've done experiments and they he was part of the party that took, uh, made the first telephone call to Melbourne and he experimented with other experimenters and Thomas in Geelong who's recorded as the first person but now I've traced that Henry was the first person and he's actually complimented by Mr Challen from the 
Melbourne Post Office, who was in charge of the telegraph station there. So he complimented being the first person to experiment in Australia. Now, the modern hunt for evidence of Henry Sutton's telephone and telephone network starts in about the year 2004. I was sitting with Claire Gervasoni, historian and curator of antique collections for Federation University, the modern-day evolution of the Ballarat School of Mines. Yeah, it's interesting we're in a cafe because I do like coffee and we were very near the Ballarat School of Mines and we were very near Sutton's music shop or what was Sutton's music shop. So talking about his inventions and what Ballarat would have been like so close to where we actually were and we decided that since things were happening down at what was the music shop that maybe we should bowl on up and just say to the people in the shop that we'd like to go down into their basement or into their roof or anywhere we could get into and see if we could find any remnants of the telephone system or the famous lift that Henry did invent. We were quite clearly being jacked up high on a heady cocktail of uh, lattes and french fries, uh, storming down to what I think the gas company owned Sutton's at the time, barged in the door, ready for confrontation, demanded access to the basement, and the guy said, Oh yeah, here you go, and just pulled the door open. We were pretty nice, weren't you? We did describe what we were up against, and we weren't. We might have barged in wanting something, but I think we did tackle it quite nicely. And and being the the great and lovely people that we were, they could tell that we were on a mission. We got down to the basement, using phones as torches, wandered around, Wouldn't and Henry have loved that. What do you know? Our own mobile phone with a torch on it. Now there's been two discoveries since. One is that the outline of one of Henry's phones can be seen on the inside wall at the top of the fire tower at the fire station in Ballarat East. The other was that a tradesman working on the renovation and restoration of Sutton's House of Music, whose basement Claire and I peered around in, discovered a section of cloth-covered copper phone cable in 2014. Sadly, we've never been able to find one of Henry's compound telephone handsets. But there's got to be one out there. In a shed. In an attic. Somewhere. But let me take you back to 1879. To be precise, November 1879. That's when Thomas Alva Edison files a patent for the electric light bulb. Now it's not exactly news to Henry Sutton. He'd been reading the journals published since the previous year that reported on both Edison in the USA and Joseph Swan in Great Britain about their experiments. What Henry didn't know was how close his own research and experimentation was to pre-empting Edison. Now let's not forget Edison was the master of commercialising technology. He had something like a small army of assistants working full-time. He conducted some 2,000 reported experiments along the way to perfecting the light bulb. Henry was working alone at night after finishing his day's work at the music store or his studies at the School of Mines. Edison made his first public demonstration of the incandescent light bulb on December 31, 1879. 16 days after Edison's announcement, Henry travelled down to Melbourne and stood in front of the government astronomer and president of the Royal Society of Victoria, R.J. Ellery, and conducted a public demonstration of his electric light bulb he designed and constructed. History, of course, remembers Edison, and it should, but it doesn't quite record what happens next. 
and that's when Henry Sutton designs a vacuum pump for the mass manufacture of light bulbs. It's really hard to make a light bulb. It's really hard to make the perfect bulb. It's really hard to repeat that process thousands of times exactly the same way. So how good is Sutton's vacuum pump? It's good enough for the Edison Company and the Swan Company in England to buy the process and use it for their manufacture of light bulbs, bringing electric light to businesses and homes all over England. And there's something else the history books have, so far, been remiss in recording, or indeed, remembering. And this leads also to him developing the battery, is that correct? Yes, the battery. Uh, well, that was that. So that's a story that, no, there's a backstory to that that Australia has never known. It was why he came up with the battery. He was asked by Mr Ellery from the Royal Society to come up with a new battery for the Victorian torpedo corps uh, for, to launch the mines from the ship. Um, the one they were using was quite old and you know, there, there was a few issues, obviously, and so he, he asked Henry, could you come up with a new battery for us that we could use? And so Henry began experimenting, came up with quite a few versions of, but then he came up with the version that was published, which was the first battery in the world that not only stored electricity, it could be recharged and had a constant power. Which, which you know, a lot of other batteries, the the power fluctuated. So it was his his had a constant power, and he could actually the colour changed in the battery when it was fully charged. So you knew when it was charged. So he gave that freely to the world. But before he could do that, he had to keep it a secret between the Royal Society here and the Royal Society in London, and so they could publish the paper at the same time because he was donating it freely to the world because he saw the benefits of it, which was correct. <laughs> Everybody could benefit and use it. This is the telegraph sent to Henry by the President of the Royal Society in London in 1882. Dear Sir, I have the greatest pleasure in receiving the addition to your former paper on storage batteries, and have put it forward for reading at our next meeting. Your former communication created much interest among our fellows. I hope to send you printed copies of it, with best wishes in the continuation of your researches. I remain W. Spottiswoode. Here's a description of Henry's battery, which appeared in a newspaper called the London Graphic in February 1882. The great utility of some thoroughly practical method of conserving electric force has caused a great deal of attention to be applied to the subject. No system of electric supply can be considered perfect until some means is used to store the force generated that it may be drawn off equally and regularly, and this whether the generator be on or off. If we take as an example of electric supply the present systems of electric lighting, it is as once seen. Should an accident or stoppage take place in the machinery generating the current, the whole of the apparatus such as lamps or motive machines, would be influenced. Should there be a reservoir of electricity between the generator and the apparatus for utilising the force, this inconvenience could not occur, as the reservoir would then supply the necessary force. That happened and he was thanked by the secretary and he did a second paper about the battery which and that was that's been published around the world and... He was thanked by Queen Victoria for his contribution to science. Wait, wait, wait a minute. He was thanked by Queen Victoria? Yes. Yes, in a letter. 
Do you have a letter from Queen Victoria to Henry Sutton? There's a a letter in the family archive. Not sure exactly where it is, but the family had it. (laughs) And it was only recently they've been looking for it. So it's there. They've seen it. There's members of the family that had it for all this time, that letter from Queen Victoria. Dear Henry, thanks for the rechargeable battery. Yours, Queen Vic. (laughs) I'm still finding stuff of Henry's. The family just... uh, Now, when the news of Henry's battery reaches New York... It comes at a time when the share market price in gas companies is plunging, as people start thinking it's going to be replaced by electricity. In 1882, there's a group of 10 industrialists and financiers in New York. They're called the Kings of Wall Street. They include the ruthless railroad developer Jay Gould, Cyrus Field, the founder of the American Telegraph Company, and the richest one of them all, William Vanderbilt. They read the report of Henry Sutton's rechargeable electric battery in the Royal Society of London. They think, if we get in on the ground floor and grab this technology, we'll make a lot of money. They send a letter to Henry Sutton, sell us the patent, and we'll form a company with you. The two principles being Gould and Field. You use the same principle and battery in your car when you drive it. When you, when you, you power anything today, that's the battery, the lead-acid battery. That's what you use. Batteries have moved on, technology's moved on, and now we have lithium, and now we're moving on to solar energy. But at the time, this was a pivotal moment of batteries and how we could use and power things. And that was the first time we now had portable power that was successful. But we don't call it the Sutton Battery. No, because he gave it freely to the world. Now, can you imagine our hardworking inventor sitting in his workshop on Main Road in Ballarat, opening a letter promising untold riches, not just for him, but for his family and generations to come? And the kind of integrity it took for that man to stand by his principle that an idea like this should really be available for all. Henry firmly knocked back the offer, and history moved on. The year is 1882. Thomas Edison opens the world's first commercial electric power plant. The outlaw Jesse James is shot dead. Brisbane becomes the first Australian city to install electric lighting, and Melbourne starts talking about electric trams. And Henry Sutton would switch his attention to photography and would spend much of this decade on visual technology. Along the way, he would come up with a process that would change newspaper publishing forever and would help create the foundations of modern photojournalism. And he would return to that idea he shared with his brother as a teenager, of giving people in Ballarat the chance to watch the horses run in the Melbourne Cup, without having to leave and travel to Flemington. That's the end of episode three. Don't forget, this podcast series is heavily based upon the work of Lorraine Branch, great-granddaughter of Henry Sutton and biographer who's just published Henry Sutton, An Innovative Man. Search for it online using your choice of wireless compound telephone handset. <laughs>